Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. I am Greg Whitmer, one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. I'm Ross Oldenkamp, also an evangelist. We'll find ourselves turning our attention in this particular episode to Acts chapter 4, and we are picking up the reading in verse 13, going on through verse 22. Jacob, would you mind reading verses 13 through 22? It says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What are we to do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let's warn them not to speak any longer to any person in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, make your own judgment, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man on whom this miracle of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. It must have been quite a sight to have these uneducated men standing in front of these uh, leaders and uh, all of these uh, um, well-educated men in, in Judaism and teaching them, I mean, they're mere fishermen, uh, teaching the noblemen. And uh, I think that some really important admissions are offered by in the text for us. Um, first of all, verse 13, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So these are not people who you would expect would have admitted that uh, they recognized that Jesus must have raised from the dead. This, these were post-resurrection uh, uh, appearances that they had recognized. And just as in the days when Jesus would silence opposition and leave them without a reply, verse 14 also likewise says they had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, the, certainly the willingness was there to oppose these men. Had there been anything that they could have said to deny the miracle that was done to the lame man or to offer even a counter-explanation, uh, they would have. But, uh, but there, was, there was nothing that could be said. And I just love the opportunity that the Holy Spirit affords us to be like a fly on the wall and to hear the backroom dealings and commentary of the people who try to work out what is being said uh, in this case. Yeah, I, I find verse 16 to be really indicative of the, the heart 
and the attitude of the these leaders of the Jews. What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. I've often wondered when I read that passage, of, what are you going to do then? Are you just going to say, okay, here's a miracle, forget about it, and let's go on? Uh, they, they have to deal with it in some way, and so the way that they do is essentially to not bring him up that, that much anymore and try to put it aside. So summoning Peter and John back before them, the Sanhedrin commands them that they should not speak or teach any more in this man's name. The Greek here is extremely forceful. The idea is absolutely not to let the name of Jesus pass from their lips again. They severely threatened them and charged them that they were not to speak about Jesus in their private conversations or in their public teaching. This order would also provide a means by which legal action could be brought against them should they violate it. Peter and John's answer is essentially twofold and sets forth a principle by which all children of God must be governed. The first part of their response was to call upon the Sanhedrin to judge for themselves and apply what they knew to be true. There are various authorities that we as Christians are bound to obey, the civil government under which we live being one of them. Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 points that out. And Peter himself strongly upheld that principle in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. However, God is the highest authority of all. And obedience to him, my friends, takes precedence over obedience to any other authority. And the Sanhedrin knew that. Peter and John asked them to determine for themselves whether God would approve of the apostles obeying the Sanhedrin rather than himself. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting the end of verse 14 is the they had nothing to say in reply. I can imagine them looking at Peter and John, as was discussed, and that they're uneducated, untrained men, and how, how in the world are they able to uh, speak with this confidence and then recognize him there with Jesus? And then they look over and see the formerly lame man who was at least there at this point in time, and you know have nothing to say. I mean, as as Acts not Acts three verse nine through ten talked about, all the people knew about uh, this man as and walked by him and. Now he's he's standing there. I think it's just, of course they had nothing to say, and it is. They just, well, let's throw this under the rug and, and cover this up and not talk about it anymore. Um, and, and just as as Greg pointed out, that is not what Peter and John are, are going to let happen. The second part of Peter and John's response was essentially that on the basis of the principle that they had just brought forth and that since Sanhedrin knew they could not obey their order. They were continuing to preach. They had seen the Lord's miracles. They had witnessed his suffering, his death, his resurrected body, and his ascension into heaven. They had heard his teaching, and he had commanded them to go and preach the gospel to every creature, so they were going to do it. It is amazing that Peter is the same man who previously had vehemently denied that he even knew the Lord 
three times, which is a wonderful example of what repentance is really all about. Uh, two things. First of all, the earlier uh, generous claim that you have crucified this man in ignorance is a window that is slowly closing for these people. I mean, at some point, you're going to have to recognize that uh, they're just becoming hard-hearted and refusing him, this chief cornerstone who's been established by God. And, uh, you know, evidence is all before them. The admissions are all there. We cannot deny it. They recognize that they have been with Jesus post-resurrection. And uh, one of the greatest and most powerful uh, proofs of, uh, of the fact of his resurrection is seen in the transformation that took place in the apostles. We may recall that immediately after the cru- uh, at the time of the crucifixion, the disciples in John 20 verse 19 are together in one place, where the doors are shut, assembled for fear of the Jews. And Jesus uh, appears to them. So how else do you explain uh, the fear uh, of the Jews and huddling together, hiding out? Uh, and now we, we come so far as to say, you know, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or God, you be the judge. Uh, we cannot but speak. You know, obviously, there has been, uh, they have been with Jesus, just as the text has said. I think it's worth mentioning again that if any group of people had been in a position to disprove the resurrection claims of the apostles, it was the Sanhedrin. If they could have disproved it, they would have disproved it. And if they could have disproved it, they would have brought this new movement that was causing them so much trouble to a complete stop. They could have caused it to collapse simply by presenting the remains of the Lord's body. But they could never do it. They could not do it. Jesus had risen from the dead. Yeah, I think it's interesting to their their possible reaction to verse 19 on, on what Peter says of whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God make your own judgment. If they were to say it's better to listen to us, what they are doing is elevating themselves over God by saying our word is something that needs to be listened to over God. Um, And then if they were to say, oh, listen to God, then they're acknowledging that they were in the wrong and that their their word wasn't um, as great as God's, which I think is just a a fascinating thing. And and also the, the piece of wherever they choose to fall on that scale, that they're not gonna stop speaking about what they've seen and heard. And they're going to continue, and they do. We have um, evidence in the following chapters that, that they continue to speak even in the midst of arrest and things that come their way. And for us in application, are we willing to continue to, to speak and to teach about what we have seen and heard, the, the, what we are reading this, uh, on this episode and, and examining the, everything else in the scriptures? Are we looking to teach that and to help others see it or are we going to stop in the midst of someone um telling us to or are we going to understand this is the the gospel and the gift of life and making sure that is shared with as many people as we possibly can okay let's move on and look at verses 23 through 31 of acts chapter 4 ross you mind reading those Sure, I'd be happy to. Acts four twenty three through 31. Yeah. And being let go, they went to their own companions 
reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hands to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. After being let go by the Sanhedrin, Peter and John went back to their companions. I don't think it's important to spend a great deal of time discussing who the companions were, but I do believe it is apparent that they were the rest of the apostles, and obviously not the entire church at that time. But it must have been wonderful, wonderful for them to go from the presence of these powerful enemies of the cross into the fellowship once again of their fellow laborers for the Lord. Being with the saints should be like being in an oasis in the desert in a time of refreshing. That is one reason why it is so tragic when a local congregation of the Lord's people can be characterized by tension and strife. Anyway, when they got among their brothers in Christ, Peter and John told all that the Sanhedrin had said and certainly would have included the command not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Hearing it, they lifted up their voices together in prayer to God. What Peter and John had to tell them had clearly impressed upon them the fact that they would now be facing strong opposition from men of power to their preaching of the gospel. They could expect persecution if they continued in that path. They were praying for help but we will note that the prayer is not to take away the persecution, but to give them the confidence and the help needed to continue to preach and convict the hearts of the people. Yeah, I think it's interesting, um, the, the quotation of, of Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2, uh, specifically found in um, verse 25 and 26 of, of Acts 4. And the I think it's just amazing to see some of, some of these prophecies. Well, all of them certainly are amazing, but... I think this one in particular to see that, I and mean, this is exactly, uh, all of them, it's exactly what happened. But this is very clear on the, the, specifically the latter half. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Um, and it talks about verse 27 of who, uh, amongst who that was. And this was a part of the plan um, in verse 28 of God knowing this was going to occur and the purpose of it. Um, I, I think it's just it's just amazing that the work of the the Holy Spirit being uh, through the mouth of David as well. This this has been uh, this wasn't a plan thrown together last second or anything. I mean, this has been 
put together for hundreds of years and what a just a awesome thing to to see verses 25 and 26 are a quotation from the messianic second psalm they begin recognizing the inspiration of the psalm of david attributing the words that david penned to the holy spirit why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things this psalm refers to the enemies of god and their opposition to Jehovah and his anointed one, the Christ. The word, the word Gentiles is variously translated as heathen or nations. It's the idea of people other than Israel. The term rage includes the idea of arrogance and insolence. They arrogantly rose up in opposition to Jehovah and Christ. But all their actions in plotting against him or vain, empty, or futile. Yeah, and the psalm gives heaven's response, which I personally love, and that is, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. All, all of the opposition is for naught. You cannot resist the will of God here. His, it, it is really not just a messianic, but a... Uh, a, a kingly message as well. This is the message of Jesus having been made the king of Israel. As the psalm even says in verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So we've noted this before. We'll note it again that Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies and try as they might to keep him off the throne. God has accomplished it, and he used them. This must have really irked them, <laughs> that God had used them to seat him on the throne. This reminds me of Isaiah 41, uh, verse 15, that says that the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Yeah, I like the um, verse 29 with the, the all-confidence piece and the, the request of, of God to grant it to them to speak their, his word with all confidence. Um, that it is something we, we should ask as well, to be speak it with confidence. I mean, there's going to be some difficult situations that they're going to be put in, even what just happened in front of who they were in front of, the um, religious authority that they had, and um, just the authority that they had, and, and to see the, the confidence that was there, that God was with them, and the continued request of that, that were where they were, and regardless of what they were facing, to speak God's word confidently and and um, effectively. I think that's a a request we should add to ourselves as well. That we're speaking it confidently. We're living out God's word confidently, with with no shame, knowing that it's far more important to be pleasing to God rather than to man. I think going along with what you said, Jacob, verse twenty-eight needs to be uh, understood completely. Uh, before the foundation of the world, God created a plan for Jesus to die in order that man might be saved, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Those involved in the crucifixion of the Lord had no idea that they were carrying out that divine plan. Nonetheless, even as they were exercising their own free will, God was using them to accomplish his goal, which, to my way of thinking, 
It's a pretty amazing thing related to the sovereignty of God. As we move into verse 29, we see the apostles making their requests. They ask God to look upon the threats of their persecutors. In view of the threats, they ask God to give them the courage to speak his word boldly, not to shrink back in fear. They refer to themselves as bondservants or slaves of God, whose desire and goal was to carry out his will, and they were praying for the ability and the courage to do so. They weren't going to stop preaching because of the opposition. That much is very clear. You know, I I immediately think of Hezekiah when I read, Lord, look on their threats. You know, this is this is a response that Christians should probably tuck away in our own arsenal and just remember this. If we ever come under a wholesale kind of persecution from our government, that uh, the response is to look to the Lord and just pray to the Lord. And just as Hezekiah, who took the threats of the Assyrians from Sennacherib and uh, and took the letter and, and spread it out before the Lord, grant, uh, just asking God to look at everything that is being threatened and, uh, and to handle it, to deal with it. And uh, God, of course, answered that prayer and gave them great, great boldness to continue to speak. Okay, let's move on and look at verses 32 through 37. I'll go ahead and read those. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Those thousands of early Christians enjoyed the kind of harmony and unity for which Christ prayed in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, and would exhort the Corinthians to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as well as in Ephesians chapter 4. They were as one. Just think about what that must have been like in those early days. No one regarded his possessions as his only Rather, each was willing to make his possessions available to any who had need. Theirs was a sharing relationship. This was not an absolutely communistic society that we're talking about here. The continuation of private ownership and the right of possession is clearly indicated in Acts chapter 5 and verse 4, which we'll be getting to before too very long. The strength of the Jerusalem church at this time is clear not only from the unity and generous sharing they enjoyed, but also in the powerful manner in which the apostles continued to testify to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power of which Luke writes could have reference to the apostles' powerful manner of speaking or to the powerful miracles by which they were preaching or confirmed. 
the church enjoyed an abundance of God's grace or favor. The churches that were doing what they were supposed to do and those members were acting as they should are greatly blessed. Yeah, I think a big attitude to, to take out of this is, is look look around to help, um, especially with your the brethren, the congregation that you may attend, um, to, to look for opportunities to, to help. And they, they clearly were doing that and um, regarding things as common property um, to, to each other and looking, there, for, there was no needy person. Are we looking to help? Um, whether that's of, of, of service, of helping people move things or whatever it may be, or if it's a, perhaps a, a financial thing out of our own pocket um, to, to do that, um, whatever it may be, to look to help um, if we're able, and, and, and in whatever way we're able to, it's, um, it's a good thing to do. In the world, there are a lot of beggars, a lot of extremely needy people. In the Lord's church, there should be an equality. There should be no beggars in the Lord's church. As the needs arise, then together they get taken care of. And that's God's plan, God's organization. One particular individual who did this was Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name of Barnabas, or son of consolation or encouragement. He was a Levite of Cyprian birth, meaning he was born on the island of Cyprus. Barnabas, he was going to play a major role in the early history of the church, particularly among the Gentiles. Yeah, you know, uh, your words just prompted the re- reminder of Psalm 37, verse 25. I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. You know, one of the ways that God accomplishes this is by using his people. Uh, uh, His people seeing to the needs of one another. That's what family is all about. And, you know, Paul ends his letter to Titus with the same exhortation. Let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. And the only other thing I wanted to mention about this section is in verse 32, uh, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. You know, as you read the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, you will find that the best days of Israel were experienced when, when a certain phrase was used, and that was, uh, that they they came together as one man. You know, any time as one man was used, you you see the unity in Israel. The good things begin to be accomplished. Ezra three one, Nehemiah eight one, both use that phrase, and good things happened after Israel came together as one man. It's just what Judges five verse two. Um, says that uh, when leaders lead and the people willingly offer themselves, that those, those are when good things happen. That's going to have to do it for today's episode. We appreciate very much each and every one of you who's listening. Encourage you to tell your friends about that you may grow thereby. And you can visit us at our website at www.nkcofc.com. Until next time, thanks again for listening.